The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Daniel Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome back to This Is Working. On every episode of This Is Working, we talk to leaders who have a significant impact on business and society. Today, we're talking to Andrew Ross Sorkin. Andrew Ross Sorkin is a business news phenom, and he has been since he was a kid. He began writing for the New York Times in 1995 when he was a high school student. He's since become a star of print, digital, TV, and streaming. His book on the start of the Great Recession, Too Big to Fail, became an 11-time Emmy-nominated HBO film. And if you're a fan of Showtime's Billions, which I am, you definitely know his work. He's the co-creator. Beyond this, Andrew drives the business agenda every day as co-host of CNBC Squawk Box and author of the New York Times must-read dealbook newsletter. But he goes beyond just covering business and talking to executives. Andrew has been using his platform lately to change that world. He's been exploring the ways that financial institutions end up fueling political division and violence and asking what they're doing about it. Here's our conversation. Where are we catching you? I'm in New York City at my home, if you can believe this, in my home studio. So it kind of looks like I'm in a real studio, but oftentimes in the morning when you see me, you can change what's in the background and uh, here I am. So uh, I'm an architect who is now building what they call Zoom rooms. So maybe everybody's going to have this sooner or later. Oh, that's not a green screen behind you? That's an actual studio that you're sitting in in your home? Yeah, we got lights. There's a teleprompter right there. It's honestly like coming to you from 30 Rock. All right. Well, I want to talk to you about some of the changes that have happened, not just to how we are working, but also how we think about what the role is of work. Your daily columns tend to set the tone for what businesses are going to talk about or how they think about certain issues. And in the last couple of years, I've noticed that there are certain things that you kind of lean into much more than I feel like you would maybe done in the past. One was gun violence. And you started putting CEOs feet to the fire on this question of do their businesses allow guns to flourish? And the second was in your early January, reading some of your columns about funding that led to or might have encouraged the insurrection or how executives think about their funding on impacts or other areas that lead to political outcomes that they might not really want. So would you just talk about how you think about your role and how it's maybe changed over the last few years? Oh, goodness. I feel like it's changed a lot over the years. You know, for much of my career, probably the first 10 or 15 years, I was a hopefully dogged M&A reporter. I was covering deals every day, trying to get the jump on what was going to happen tomorrow morning before the press release came out. Who was talking to who? Who was merging with who? And what was happening behind the scenes? You know, to some degree, Too Big to Fail was a book that tried to be a fly on the wall, what they call TikTok in, in, the, in the business, of, of what that world looked like. And a lot of the kind of work I was doing was in that vein of trying to help the public sort of get inside the room and understand what was happening. I think what's changed over time is rather than just tell the public what is happening and giving them or trying to give them that sort of bird's eye view so they could come up with their own perspective, I've probably begun uh, to add a bit more of my perspective. And I think I've probably spent more time thinking about the role of business and, frankly, what good it can do. 
And that has created a bit more of a sense of thinking about what are the steps that businesses can take to improve society. I know that sounds cheesy or cliche, but that's that's kind of what it is. And so when I've seen things that have happened in society, oftentimes, and I've always been this way, I look at the world through the prism of money, not in a cynical way, but in a, if you understand and follow the money, you can figure out a lot of things. When the Parkland shooting happened, for example, and there was a, a renewed conversation about gun safety and gun, gun control, I started to think to myself, okay, well, how do people buy guns? Do they use cash? Do they use credit cards? Okay, do they use credit cards? That's interesting. There are a number of companies that already, for example, limit the ability. For example, PayPal doesn't allow people to buy guns with the PayPal service. Well, what about the credit cards? And what about the banks? And what about the issuers? And are they thinking about any of these things? And so I think it's a little bit of peeling the onion back and realizing in the case of guns, for example, that in the end, banks, I think to some degree, unwittingly or unknowingly, to be honest with you, ended up financing mass shootings in large part because actually many, if not most gun purchases in America actually are on credit cards. And most importantly, it requires the credit of the bank, meaning that a lot of these people don't actually have the money in the bank at the time that they're buying the guns. So effectively, the bank is spotting them the money. And I'm not sure that that was something that they ever thought about. And so trying to get some of this into the conversation so that people start thinking about it has been something that I've been trying to do. Parkland to me read like something that you were doing differently. That was the first time I'm like, oh, this is Andrew pushing in in an area that I've not seen him push into before. Had you wanted to do it before? Was there something about that that you said, now is my time to start asking these kind of questions? To be honest with you, I mean, I don't know if I've ever said this publicly or not. It wasn't really that. And it wasn't necessarily, um, you know, a burning desire to get involved in a gun control debate. It just so happens that I write a column on Tuesdays. I have one today. And the Parkland shooting, I think, happened on a Friday. And if you are a journalist thinking about what can you write about that's, that, that people are going to be focused on and paying attention to that week, I remember thinking to myself, I had a, a different column planned that week that had nothing to do, obviously, with the shooting because it wasn't something that was on anybody's radar. And I thought to myself, nobody's going to read this. And that sort of just led me to start thinking about what had happened in Parkland. Obviously, I was deeply moved by it, and I know so many others were. And then I just, in the same way that I try to peel back every financial story, I think I tried to peel back the Parkland story as a financial story in my own way. And that's what really led to that moment. Hmm. It's just, it it is so different than the typical business. I I think for anyone watching this, joining in on this uh, video right now, you're used to having columnists weigh in on all kinds of columns. No matter where you live, you see people taking on big issues and asking tough questions. In business journalism, though, it usually sticks within the business framework. What happened? Who got what, what was the big purchase that happened? What's going on with this company doing X, Y, or Z? These questions would typically fall outside of the business world. And I think that the uh, question of the uh, funding packs is also another one that business columnists typically wouldn't have stepped on before. Let me say one other thing, though, because I do think there has also been a change, though, in society, actually, that may have actually spurred some of this for me in a way that I didn't appreciate either. Uh, before we, we even talk about the pack issue, which is, I actually think that post 2008, really, actually, this goes back to the financial crisis. All of a sudden, business was no longer about just business anymore. It wasn't just about how a company's earnings did or what was happening here. Everything became interconnected. To some degree, it all became 
political. We saw Occupy Wall Street. We saw big debates about taxes and and stimulus plans and bailouts and the Tea Party movement. And everything started to become connected. The business story became the everything story. Uber no longer was a story simply about technological innovation or even the, the taxicab industry. It became a story about labor. It became a story about automation and AI and all of these issues. Facebook was no longer just a tech story. It was about privacy and the First Amendment. And so in many ways, I think that the, the business story has become a broader story and more broadly understood that way. It's interesting you would say that the last couple of guests who have been on This Is Working have, have really expressed very similar points of view, whether that's Ray Dalio talking about how the economy pulls people apart and what we can do to bring it together, or Vernay Myers, who's the head of uh, inclusion strategy at Netflix, explaining how the strategy part of dibs is what a lot of companies miss. And it's what Netflix has gotten so right, and it's been part of their business. Andrew, can you talk about the reaction as you started pressing into these areas, as you talk about this idea of business and society merging and questions that used to no longer be part of the business world now being part of the business world? What have you been hearing from sources, people you talk to? What kind of questions can you now ask on CNBC or what topics are people bringing up that you wouldn't have heard a couple of years ago? Well, look, I think it means that that everything is on the table. I wrote a column today that was about diversity on one side, but it was really a story about boardrooms and corporate culture and power on the other. And they're all, again, interconnected. I think that people are, are fascinated by this. I will say it creates probably more debate, which is a good thing, but also more uncomfortable moments at the same time, because invariably there are people on different sides of these issues. Some people may be on the right sides. Sometimes people are on the wrong side or other side. And so it's, it, it's more complicated, but people want to engage on this stuff in a way that I don't think that they did uh, years ago. I think people very much lived in a very siloed world, and now they're having to confront these broader issues in ways that they never anticipated. I remember when somebody mentioned what a B Corp was to me many, many years ago, and they started talking about ESG. I think there was a cynical take, and there still can be a, a cynical, if not skeptical take on it. But you know, when Larry Fink at BlackRock started writing these letters, I think people didn't really understand necessarily where he was coming from or thought that this was marketing or something else. And to some degree, it may very well be, but he and others have moved the conversation forward in a way that I don't think um, for a very long time was fully appreciated, but in terms of what was possible. And now you're starting to see companies really invest in things like climate. I mean, billions of real money in, in some of these uh, things and, and taking on issues that historically people didn't want to touch. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. 
I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Andrew, I know that how you do your job has changed over the last year. As people are working from home, has that changed the kind of topics that you're covering? Or how does it change the world now that you have people watching this with their families all around them or maybe not going into the office and leaving the TV on and, and you know, on mute in the corner? What does it change? For me, selfishly, it's, it's bizarre and bizarrely gratifying in a way because the TV medium is a remarkably intimate one. I think we're, we're having this moment ourselves right now. But to have this moment, at least for me, every morning for three hours with the audience on Squat Box is, is, is quite something. And so there's a reliance that I've discovered and relationships that we've discovered through social media and others of people knowing that they're on the other end of the camera, which is very sort of out-of-body experience in some ways. But it's also responsibility because you know uh, that you're there. I mean, you always knew that there were people watching, but I think now that people aren't going out, this is a bit of a, an even closer bond and a closer relationship. In terms of the program, one of the things that's amazing is the, the kinds of guests that are, quote-unquote, available. So, you know, again, this goes to Zoom and everything else. Because people are at home, when you call up and say, hey, can you come on at 7.30 in the morning, and you say, I'll send you a Zoom link, it, it makes the whole thing so much easier because typically, you know, if you want to get Bill Gates on the show, He's got his schedule planned out for six or eight months from now, right? And so I think that the, the kinds of people, the level of talent uh, that are sharing their insights, that are willing to engage with the public, willing to engage with the audience is actually an all-time high as well. For somebody who gets up in the morning and I'm blessed that I get to have breakfast with some of the most interesting people in the world, uh, they, they've gotten even more interesting during this period. The other component of that is that people now realize that they can do this also themselves. Once, yes. once you just need a Zoom link to do this, like I, I could run my own conference, I could have my own show, and people are doing that. This democratization of voice feels like it's happened on video and audio as well as the tools that were once available just to CNBC have been accessed to everyone. Have you, have you seen that? I was just having this conversation, guess where, on Clubhouse, as it happens. Um, I think last week we were talking about this very issue. To some degree, this, I mean, I think it's accelerated during the pandemic, no question. I would say this began, though, even if you go all the way back to Jon Stewart interviewing people, all of a sudden the, the, the journalist, the news guy, I don't want to say it became less important. I don't like to think it became less important. But all of a sudden, the viewer, the public was willing to accept somebody else in that role. In some cases, they were willing to trust that person even more so. And I also think podcasts have changed it too, because you've also seen sort of the celebrity podcast, uh, others podcasting, doing interviews, experts interviewing other experts. 
So a lot of this is really shifting. And, and now you're seeing it with Clubhouse and audio and, and so much of this. It's, it's remaking this. For all the journalists out there, I'm hoping that there's still a role for us. I do think that these conversations I'm listening to on Clubhouse and other places, especially where you're seeing experts interviewing experts or friends interviewing friends, are helpful. And sometimes they can get certain things out of a subject of an interview that a journalist can't. But I also think there's a value, or at least I, I rationalize or like to think to myself, that there's a value that the journalists bring in terms of the preparation, in terms of the way they can approach a question, in terms of trying to actually bring out news that often doesn't happen necessarily in the context of some of these other kinds of formats. Did you agree with that or no? Uh, no, I, I think that is totally true. And I think as more voices go out there, there's just more information. And I think one of the key roles of the journalist in the future is packaging or sorting through all of this incredible amount of information and voice out there and saying, like, here's what matters. Here are the trends I'm seeing. But here's the selfish question. Does it devalue what the public thinks of as journalism? And does the public understand the distinction? And is, and is there one, right? I mean, that's sort of, that's sort of the nub of the, the issue underneath all of this, I think. Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I do think that there is a, a lot that you can learn from watching how journalists work. And there's a lot that I learn constantly from listening to how people do their interviews. So I have found that I, one of the things I love about this is that you'd realize like, oh, I'm actually not that good at what I do. I just, there are a lot of other people that are good at this. I can learn from them and always try to get better. So I'm a fan of it. See how I've turned the tables, you know? I, I like asking the questions better. Let's check on this question uh, of journalists. What is the role of the journalist? Do you think that people have changed their impression of what journalists provide or what they can do has changed? It's a great question. I don't know the answer. I think over time, what you're seeing more of, hopefully, is this idea of, of journalists holding people to account. I think there's a view, for better or worse, that, that what happened yesterday, sort of the sports score has become commoditized. So I think that as journalists are trying to elevate their game, they're trying to do more investigative or enterprise or feature style work. I, I think there's a shift taking place. But also, I think there's a shift in terms of the technology, uh, how people get their news, the documentary business, which is thriving now in ways that never was before. So I think there's all sorts of new opportunities. I mean, I know people like to think the news business is dead or newspapers are dead, or this, but I actually think there's more opportunity. It's just not what it used to be. Yep. 100%. Uh, I got to ask you about your own career. So in high school, you started working at the New York Times. Is that right? I, it's true. I started working for uh, a guy who I owe much of my career to, Stuart Elliott, who was the advertising columnist at the New York Times for many, many years. He was somebody as a high school student that I read religiously. I loved Stuart then. I love him now. And I came for five weeks for free. Uh, literally, I stood next to his desk. I didn't have a chair and I would Xerox and staple stuff for him. And I thought it was the greatest job of my career. And I probably still think it might have been. We had such a ball back then. And it, it was just, it was, it was an opportunity for me to get my foot in the door. I had no intention of putting two words together, let alone a sentence. I find writing, by the way, even to this day, I know I'm arguably a professional writer, but I find it very difficult. I have visions of people like Michael Lewis playing the keyboard like a piano. I don't play it like a piano. I sit there and in pain most of the time, but that's how it began. And, um, if I'm shouting people out, I should say I was, I think it was the third week I was there. I had a, a suit on or a tie or something, probably better than what I'm wearing now. 
uh, trying to look the part. And uh, there was an editor named Felicity Barringer who had no idea how old I was and shared me talking about this thing called the internet back when is 95, back when we would literally write the word modem, comma, a device that transmits data over a phone line, just to date myself. And she uh, assigned me a story to write. That's how it began. That's great. I'm one of the luckiest ducks in the world that I know it. And you would push the New York Times early. The deal book was a column. I mean, it was a blog, excuse me. So you were, you were actually publishing online at a time when the Times had kind of mixed feelings about the, the internet and what its role should be there. Totally. It was 2001. And I had this idea that people in the business community, CEOs, bankers, lawyers, people working in the world of deal making could use their product and email that told them everything that was going on that day that aggregated all of the news in one place from different sources, not just the New York Times, but the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. And I, I used to go and find local papers back when there were local papers. I remember I do international stories from the Le Monde in Paris, and we translate the articles and we put it all in one place. And that, that's how we began, because I found myself running around the internet trying to find these stories myself. And I knew a lot of people in the business community who were doing the same thing. And I thought that would be a service. And I also thought if I could show the New York Times stories next to all of these other stories, I could demonstrate that we were competitive. And we were doing a great thing. So that's that's actually how Dealbook began. But I'll, yes, you're 100% right. Back then, I remember when I first had, had even had the conception of the idea, people thought I was crazy. How could you link to your competitor? That was like a, a completely nutty thing to do. Now, of course, we do it, you know, 100 times a day. And do you think about that as being the kind of route you recommend people take in their careers? I think there's so many people who go to work and you think, do I want to rock the boat? Do I want to fight for something that I believe in, but the company clearly doesn't, versus going and proving that I'm going to do something that will become big in three years and in five years or however long it takes. What do you tell people who, when they are starting out, how much they should do things like insist on working for free somewhere and then coming up with their own plans for what they're going to build versus going where the company that they're working for is already moving? Well, look, let me say, first of all, I was in a, in a blessed position to be able to do that, to actually go have an internship for free. And a lot of people don't have that opportunity. And obviously, I was able to squeeze my way in the door. So I, I, let, let's, just, let's just say that my example, unfortunately, I, I don't think is necessarily the best representation insofar as I'm so aware of how hard it is to replicate and how lucky I was. Having said that, what I tell you know, all, all young people coming into journalism, which I still think is one of the great professions in the world where, where you get paid to ask questions uh, and you have license to ask questions and what other profession, you know, allows for that is to just try to make yourself indispensable, indispensable in whatever it is that you're doing. If it literally is Xeroxing and stapling and bringing co coffee to people and you make yourself indispensable to that, to the person you're doing that for, that has value. And that's how I've always thought about it uh, with everything. But I've also thought that you should keep pushing and pitching new ideas. And I, I probably do it to annoyance to some of my superiors and people around me, but it's worked. Having said that, I also did this inside a larger organization, you know, sort of creating a, a startup inside a big organization. I do think there's been tremendous value in doing it inside the times and staying with it and sticking with it. We're coming up on our 20th anniversary this fall. But I also know a lot of people who want to go and be you know, tr you could say true entrepreneurs. I feel sort of entrepreneurial inside the inside the company, but folks who would go out on their own and do it as a startup, and I, I admire both. 
That was Andrew Ross Sorkin, creator of New York Times' Dealbook newsletter and co-host of CNBC's Squawk Box. At one point in our interview, Andrew talked about what it was like when he was an intern and how he made himself indispensable. He talked about making photocopies and getting coffee and stapling stuff and doing whatever was required of him. And then leaning into areas where he knew he could be an expert and make his voice, like introducing the New York Times to blogs. I loved that approach, that idea of always making yourself indispensable and finding areas where you can make a mark. Is this something that you've done in your own career? How has it worked for you or how hasn't it worked? Please share using the hashtag, this is working. To get more news and insights into our changing world, you can follow our main LinkedIn page, which you can find by searching for LinkedIn News. Also, please share this episode with a friend who is curious about journalism or about the way executives are sharing their voice or how finance affects society. You can get a link on your favorite podcast platform or share the newsletter, which you'll find on my profile. This is Working as a production of LinkedIn. The podcast was produced by Sarah Storm with help from Dave Pond and Michaela Greer. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original video and audio. Dave Pond is our technical director. I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Stay strong. See you soon.